Are you looking for freedom? Freedom from the daily grind and hustle? Or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted? Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala. Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Today we have a pretty special episode. Um, We're gonna let you guys behind the curtain on a conversation that Kara and I were so fortunate to have with Morgan Housel. He is the author of The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness. And uh, this is probably gonna be a two-part episode and uh, because it was a, a 90-minute phone call. And so we'll, we'll split this up into two. But again, this was a special conversation because you know most of us are on our um, wealth-building journey, if you will, and also you know as the podcast states, um, it's investing for freedom. And so, you know, part of my core values, if you will, are, you know, obviously it takes money to uh, live a lifestyle that I want, but also at the same time, I want to make sure that I have my freedom and my happiness. And again, like the the title says, uh, the psychology of money is so important because just like the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. A lot of people say that money is the root of all evil. And there's a psychological um, effect of that one way or another. And so I can understand why the love of money is the root of all evil, but that's a lot different than money being the root of all evil because it does take energy, commerce, resource, et cetera, um, to be able to trade. And whether it's a dollar bill or whether it was trading, you know, uh, a one chicken for 50 eggs or whatever back in the day. Um, that's just an exchange of value. And so I think the psychology of money is so important. And in episode one, we're going to get into quite a bit of stuff with uh, Morgan. You'll hear a little bit about our backstory and just some of the psychology that we've worked through. And then uh, we start getting into psychology around um, couples, et cetera. Uh, hopefully you enjoy uh, this episode and our time with Morgan Housel. I highly recommend that you go get this book that he wrote, The Psychology of Money. It was such a great read and um, just really taught me a lot about the way that I think about money, et cetera. So um, hope you enjoy it. What I was really interested in listening to you around, um, I've never really thought about psychology of money. Um, I've just been out, you know, making money, doing the thing. And um, I've never even really paid attention or focused on money for a lot of years. And so, you know, reading your book and just listening to you speak, it's kind of I actually just got off a call with another guy who just moved to Italy and we were talking about you a little bit. And the thing that's intriguing to me is just the way that you think about it. And I think I could come to center a little bit more too. Um, And, you know, as I get a little bit older and um, I don't know, I just want to find kind of a, a, a middle ground there. But also when we think about the work we do with couples and around money and investing and everything else, I think we, I think we kind of owe it to each other in the world to, you know, just listen to um, the psychology around it. So that's what I was really curious around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love that your podcast, and I can see it in the background there, investing for freedom, because that's like that's all I that's all I've ever wanted out of money, and that's what I've been most interested in. And my wife and I are not into status games. I'm not into showing people how much money we have. I couldn't. I, I'm just. I I'm I'm an extroverted person. I, I like talking to other people, but I I could not care less what they think about 
I, I just want to use money for our independence and freedom so I can wake up every day and know two things. One, my, my kids and my wife, like they're all fine. Every, like everything's going to be okay. And two, like we can do whatever we want today. I'm not beholden to someone's quarterly goals, to someone else's career advancement. I'm just, it's a, it's a very selfish thing, but I think it's a good kind of selfish of like, I just want myself and my family to be totally cool. Yeah. And so I can go out and do anything I want. And a lot of what I'm going to want to do is want to help other people, want to write some stuff that other people will like. So it's not purely selfish, but I, I like just using money for independence and freedom to me has always been what I've been after. And the thing is like, I like, I like nice cars. I like Ferraris. I like nice homes. I like all that stuff, but I, because I, I like, it's beautiful and I think it looks cool and whatnot, but we live a very simple, simplistic life because the status gain element for us has just been like reduced to zero. And that to us has been where we found the most happiness. But I would say too, I was talking to a friend about this yesterday. I think there's a large portion of society for whom that would, that would not be a good life. Mm-hmm. That there are a lot of people who would look at me and, 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 and maybe look at, at you guys as well and say, you don't know how to live a good life. You don't know how to spend money in order to make yourself happy. I'm, I'm open to that. But to me, that, like, the takeaway from that is just everyone's a little bit different. And I think everyone, I think the freedom element of money is like universally overlooked because it will make everyone happy at some level. But for me, it's, it's all I want. And for other people, it's just, a, it's just a portion of what they need, but they still want to go out and spend tons of money on living a good life. So I don't judge people who have that lifestyle. I don't think it's wrong. It's just for me, just having freedom and independence is all that I ever want out of money. Yeah. It's such a, you know, and I think that's kind of where we came from too. And I, I don't know, the last couple of years, just getting more intentional around thinking about money. And again, that's where I think the psychology of money and what you, you know, your work is super intriguing because so we started our first business at 24. I'll just give you a, you know, kind of a, a, a quick overview. Um, I was a plumber by trade. We got married early. She was um, 20. Mm-hmm. No, 19. 19, yeah. She was 19 and I was 20. We had our first kid a year later. He's now 20, wow. which is pretty wild. Um, yeah. But yeah, so we started, you know, we started a family early and I was, I was working um, a job as a, you know, 23, 24 year old. Um, our whole goal we even said this when we were first getting married. Um, I, I think we've probably crafted the statement a little better, but you know, our whole goal was to, you know, be present and make memories over possessions. That's kind of how we always thought about it. Like we just wanted to, I grew up with a dad who was absent and her family was always pretty tight knit, but you know, working and doing the thing. And so we always wanted to just be really present parents. And um, I found myself working out of town. I'm working like 110 hours a week, half the time. And I literally would come home, in the evenings every, every once in a while. And the, I'm missing the boys growing up and she's pregnant with our third child, who's our daughter. And a couple, you know, some things lined up and it allowed us to quit and start our own business at 24, a plumbing and HVAC company. Um, and I don't, we didn't really talk even about it much. We didn't think about it much. It was just kind of like, this is what we need to do. Yeah. And and I want to interject something. Yeah. So it's interesting though, even the psychology part, because I did grow up in a pretty stable family, really pretty present parents, but they weren't entrepreneurs whatsoever, but my grandpa had been. And so, but he had went into business with somebody and lost everything because it was the wrong partnership and the guy ended up stealing. And my parents were saying that you shouldn't be an entrepreneur, but just those stories were so implanted in me that it was scary for a long time. I thought that if you, you know, went into business or anything like that, that you could lose lose everything, lose your family. Um, So like at that point where we were working, he was out of town that whole time. 
that was like a big eye opener for me to be like, well, we're already living that lifestyle that I didn't want. So why not risk something and go for it too? Yeah. And even having that conversation, yeah. like the amount of the, the parts of that conversation we did have was kind of like an analysis of, okay, like what's the worst case scenario. So the worst case scenario was um, me and me and a partner were pulling a 401k that we had that was like $75,000. So the worst case scenario was we lose $75,000 and I go back to work for the company that I'm working for or one of their competitors, depending on how mad they are. And you just kind of realize that you're already living mm -hmm. your worst case scenario. Um, that's, that's like, that's the benefit of doing this when you're young. Cause I bet if you were starting that business today with three kids or whatever, then it's a completely different calculation. But when you're, when you're 24, even if you guys were married and had kids and you guys were full fledged adults at this point, which most 24 year olds are not, like when you have, when you have little to lose, that's a, that's a beautiful spot to be in. I'm, I'm curious. So when you were, when you got married and you started this, was your expectation, your assumption that you were going to be a plumber and just be kind of a standalone plumber. And that's, that's what you were going to do. And the wages that would be associated with that. Do you have any idea or aspiration or view that it would turn into this? No, no. And does that, and does that, does that kind of, like what what has that done to your views on money? Because I would contrast that with someone who grows up in a wealthy family and goes to Harvard. And from the time that he or she is 15 years old, they know they're going to be filthy rich. They know it. It's it's that that's the baseline. Mm -hmm. Contrasting that with your with the two with both of your situations, like what has that done to your views around money today since you didn't expect to be in this spot? Well, and you know, and that's really, again, I'm so intrigued. Just even the last couple of years, I've really been thinking about, I read a book a long time ago about, you know, first generation entrepreneurs, they have nothing to lose. Everything's, you know, they're on this rocket ship, but then pretty soon they get to a point where they have a lot to lose. And so they begin plateauing. Yeah. And I think what's interesting for me is even just thinking through this process and you're, you know, reading your book is it's, I'm really thinking about my thinking around it, but also I've found myself I think it was, was it Jamie Gruber that took you to the airport? Was it, do you remember if it was Jamie? Maybe, maybe. But anyway, um, he runs the Ascend and the Emerge program, which is like kind of the feeder to go abundance. And so I went and I was speaking to that group, you know, probably two months ago. And they were asking me all these questions that I kept finding myself saying, they were asking me questions about what it was like me leaving my job and starting a business, which is, you know, a lot of the reframing that you're talking about. And I kept finding myself saying to them, like, you have to be really careful listening to what I'm about to say, because, you know, I, a lot of these people that are in Ascend and Emerge, they're, they're 30, they're 40. And, you know, they're this far into their career and they're thinking about, you know, leaving. And they're, one of the questions that they asked me was like, how, how many rentals did you have? And what was the thought process? And how long did it take you, you know, from the time you started thinking that you wanted to quit your job till you actually quit it? And I'm like, like three weeks. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, to your point, like we were in a whole different place. We were just doing what yeah. we, we needed to do. And there wasn't a lot of risk involved in it. And so yeah. that's actually some of the psychology things that I would love to talk through with you as well, because um, I don't want to get over into... I'm definitely less, I, I found myself in a period of time where I haven't taken on risk the last few years. And I'm, I'm kind of coming back full circle into some things we're launching and that kind of stuff, but I can feel myself kind of, um, I guess, and I don't know if it's a bad thing or a good thing, but I, I it's not the same. 
It's not the same as it was before. And see, I, I feel that with myself as well. And I feel like it's, to me, I, I almost embrace the idea that the wealthier you become, however you want to measure that, the less risk you need to take. Mm. And I guess there's two money mindsets. One is like the, the right amount of money is just more than you have right now. That's always the goal. Like doesn't matter what your net, what your net worth is, more is what you want. That's one and that's fine. The other is like money is a tool to give myself a good life. And once I have a garage full of tools, all the tools I need, I don't need any more tools. That's, that's it. And therefore the wealthier you become, the less risk you need to take. I think it's fascinating. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I think it's fascinating when you have multi-billionaires, deca-billionaires who are taking enormous risks and working 100 hours a week. Again, I admire the hell out of it. I'm not in the slightest saying it's wrong, but that would not be me in the slightest. I have a, a net worth number in my head that I'm confident my net worth will never exceed because if I reach it, I think I'll just kind of shut everything down. And mm. I say that like theoretically, like realistically, that probably won't happen. But I think I just try to view money as a tool to go out and do the other things that I want in life. Yeah. And for a lot of people, maybe this is true for you guys as well, what you want to do is work and build a business. Like that's great in itself. And the money's going to come on from that. So it's less about like shutting everything down. But uh, the, the idea of when you gain more wealth, though, you take less risk. I think that's, that's great. That's a great position to be in. Mm. Um, so, so to me, when, whenever I meet people like that, I always say like, Hey, that's kind of me as well. And rather than fighting that or thinking it's a problem or thinking that you like declined in your ability to take more risk, I'd be like, Hey, that's great. You don't need to take anymore. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, and I think as, you know, kind of like a serial entrepreneur, I've, I think I'm really leaning into also making sure that, you know, what I do is bringing me passion as well. Because I think for a while I was on this treadmill where I always have to be doing something. And, mm -hmm. and then I think I went the opposite way. I just got burnt out and tired. And I'm just like, but it was because I wasn't doing things that were also fueling the, my passion and, and were led by that as well. So, you know, yeah. for me, it's never really been about money. Um, so I, I've right. kind of tried to avoid putting too much focus on the money, but um, I, I think there's a happy medium there too. Yeah. There's this great quote from Buffett that I love where he says, uh, if you risk what you need in order to gain what you don't need, that is foolish. That's, that's the definition of like terrible financial decisions where people risk what they need to gain what they don't need. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, when that becomes part of their identity and their personality, I'm a successful entrepreneur, then the idea of losing that is terrifying. Whereas when you were 24 and you didn't have that identity to lose, you could have gone back to where you were before and it would have not, not been that big a deal. You don't have an identity to lose. Mm -hmm. And that I think is where if there, if there are entrepreneurs that become less willing to take risks as they, as they grow wealthier, that's probably where it comes from. It's like, I don't want to lose that identity. And even for a successful business, like things can be hanging by a thread. Like you can have the rug pulled out from you really quickly. And the idea of losing that becomes so terrifying. Bill Gates once made a comment about this as well, that like when you grow wealthy, like all your thought becomes in how do I make sure I don't lose it? It's not about how do I grow it? It's how do I make sure this is not taken away from me? And that's kind of a sad like a, you know, spot to be in as you become wealthier. But I think that's a very realistic part of where this comes from. And again, it's less about the money. It's more about just the identity of who you are. Like, what, like you are a successful entrepreneur. Both of you are successful entrepreneurs. And that's, that's what you want to maintain. So that from, from that perspective, like it, it, it starts to make a lot of sense. But do you think you are taking a lot less financial risk now than, than you were? Or is it still kind of investing back into the businesses and keeping it going? 
That's a good question. Um, I don't know that we're actually taking less. Fi- I, I think we're probably taking more financial risk. Yeah, for sure. Um, Only because we didn't have any money. Yeah. So it's such <laughs> a great. Beginning. Yeah, it's such a great reframing because I think we're actually taking more risk. Um, I think probably, and again, such a great question. I think what actually I struggle with is not the fact that I'm no longer taking risk. It's just now I'm processing through the risk I'm actually taking. Um, yeah, and maybe that's that's smart. Is maybe early on um, it was just kind of being oblivious to risk, just just through. Uh, youth and lack of experience. It wasn't that you were like willing to take it. You just didn't even know what was what was going on. And now you're more cognizant of it. That that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think there's there's a lot of evidence that as people age, you know, they become less they they become more conservative because they're more aware of how dangerous the world can be, and they're more aware. Like after you've gone through COVID, which may have been a boon for you guys' business actually, but um, or 2008 or whatnot. Once you go through those periods and you're aware that the world can break overnight in ways that no one saw coming, yeah. you're naturally going to become much more conservative over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I think my thoughts are always like the attachment piece is so interesting to me because I think the more we're attached to those identities and you know, really that money and that lifestyle, the more it's riskier. Whereas if you could detach from those and my thought is always like, even if we lose everything and we have to move into a little apartment, like this is the most important thing, like relationships. And we could do it again because we know how to, Mm -hmm. not that I want to start over, but I, I, that (laughs) attachment piece is so interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's, that's a great, obviously mentality mindset, knowing that what's most important is who's, who's sitting next to you. There's a great podcast with Ishamop Paula Habitia, who's a billionaire investor. He's, 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 he's kind of a cowboy wacko, but he had this idea, you know, his, his net worth is 10 or $12 billion. And he mentioned that he has, he didn't say how much, but he has a small portion set aside, like in treasuries in case everything else blows up, just like the ultimate safety that if everything goes to zero, you've got some set aside to keep you from, you know, complete devastation. That's a really smart, smart way to think about that as well. And I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of entrepreneurs who don't have that. They, they're so fully invested in their business that if things get tight, they're, they're completely jammed up in, in their personal lives. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting spot to be in. Do you have an end game for your business? Is there a goal to sell it? Or do you think you'll be running this when you're 95 years old? Well, so I sold that first business in 2014. Um, so, I mean, we've kind of gone on and done a lot of different things. Um, you know, I was just thinking about, so we were on the Inc. Fastest Growing Companies in America in 2009. It was like this crazy ride. I mean, even from the age of 24 to, we sold it when I was 34. Um, but along the way, we had acquired a bunch of real estate. So, um, yeah. and then that's when I kind of shifted after we sold. And I think that's really where that was that period of time where I just started doing things to do things. Um, and even the psychology around that, like the value and who we are. And, you know, I spent 10 years of my life being, uh, Mike, the plumber, um, and we had over a hundred employees. And so my whole identity was wrapped up in that. And then when we sold, it was kind of like, now what I often said, it was yeah. the best and worst day of my life. Um, and we still get a, you know, an annual paycheck from that, but, and this is probably also part of it too. Like that's coming to an end. And, you know, so then you just start, you know, stacking other things, but that's kind of what made me start the podcast and the personal brand. And, and, and all of that is I just wanted to get to a point where no matter what, I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur in the sense that, um, you know, I've, I've started a bunch of different businesses and, um, even right now we're creating some funds with some different partners to 
to do different asset classes and that kind of stuff. But no matter what I do, I want to make sure that I, my identity isn't locked into a certain business that I'm going to sell after, you know, and your question was, are you going to do that till you're 95? Um, you know, maybe, maybe doing what, whatever it is, you know, like helping people in the mindset and investing in businesses. But I'm not literally, I'm not anchored to any one business. I'm kind of a visionary in the sense that, you know, I no longer identify as a plumber, I guess is the, yeah, um, I see. Yeah. Kind of like a serial entrepreneur at this point. But, you know, even within that, that's where the personal brand comes in. I just want to make sure that, you know, no matter what I do, no matter what I invest in, staying true to who I am and, you know, the investing for freedom aspect of that is is kind of why I've created all of it. That makes sense. Okay. Okay. I was not aware that that you had sold it in in in, in 2014. That's interesting. And to sell it too at a, at a pretty young age, it's almost like an athlete that it, that achieves like peak career success in their 20s. And then they got another 70 years to live after that. And it's like, what, what now? It's a great position to be in. But you know, it's it's very different than if you reach your kind of the pinnacle of your career in your in your 50s and 60s, like 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 so many other people do. Um here, so so how do you invest your your money now if, if the business was sold in 2014? What what's the last seven years of money management look like? Well, some of it, and I think again, this is what's interesting about the psychology around money, because even though I said like I've never really been focused on money, um we bought back a cabinet shop that we had owned and and that was because I got bored. I even asked her, I'm like, what do you think about this? Um, because the the guy that we had sold it to was kind of like, I can't handle it, it's not going well. And I'm like, what do you think? And she's like, well, do whatever you want. I don't think it's a good idea, but I, I went and did it anyway. And um, that was just horrible. Um, I spent a year of my life just trying to, if I would have just been patient and calm, then the things that found me or that I found would have came anyway. Um, so ended up selling that. Um, we bought more real estate. I teamed up with a business partner um, and we've started a, a small fund and went and bought 35 mobile home park communities. We built a team around that. It's all in the Midwest and Southeast. So we've done that. Um, we've done some, you know, just some investments on our own stuff. We have a real estate portfolio. We've sold a lot of that off, but we still have some commercial buildings and um, had some mobile home parks of our own. And we still have some single families, probably 25 doors in Nevada. Yeah, cool, cool. That's, that's awesome. That's that's really cool. That's a great position to be in. Uh, that's great. I mean, it sounds like you guys are doing incredible. Um, what's your what, what's your biggest money fear, worry? What what keeps you up at night? That kind of nags at you. Mm, that's a good question. It is so good. Um, I think my biggest thing is, you know, I haven't actually really thought about this, but now that you're asking, like the first thing that came to my mind was, when does it end? So, like your question of you know, are you going to do this till you're 90? Like, when do we stop being so aggressive with yeah. the way that we like are investing back? I think both of our personalities are very like, let's just do this. And so when do we like, just maybe chill for a little and enjoy? Mm-hmm. Not that we don't, I think we really do enjoy our lives. Like, mm-hmm. um, but I feel like it's like in spurts. And I feel like right now we're in a major growth spurt and maybe more risk yeah. taking. Um, so like, when does that like, kind of back up and maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I think that's probably my biggest. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That's a good one. Well, and for me, I think, you know, when we started the first business, the reason why we started that business was to control our time Mm -hmm. and life and all of that. And, you know, so I think just finding, keeping that, that flow where no matter what we do, we're doing life by design and not letting these other things design our life. And so I, I was on a, 
call with a, I did a podcast with a guy this morning who just moved to Italy. Um, he was a chiropractor and gave everything up and moved to Italy. And I just, I've been watching his journey and it's totally life by design. And I think that's the real, mm-hmm. um, so what keeps me up at night, I think is purely, this is why I was so excited to have this conversation too, because it just reframes when I am being kept up at night, it's because I'm getting too aggressive or there's things that I think I want in life that I'm striving for. And, and, and when I got off that call a few minutes ago, I went and told Kara, our daughter, who's our last child at home, um, decided to homeschool. And I'm like, we're in a rental right now. Cause we just moved to Austin and she doesn't love the house. And I'm like, why don't we just move out of this and just go travel? Cause that's what, like the whole reason we sold the business in 2014 was because she said, when our youngest graduates, I want to take a year off. And so that kind of set me in motion thinking like, there's no way I'm going to be a part of this business and be able to take a year off. But now we're there. And it's like, I don't know, there's a part of me that, you know, maybe, and like Kara said, we do enjoy our life. We have a lot of fun. We take a lot of vacations, Yeah. but also I want to make sure, you know, just, and I've been thinking about this a little bit, but this is anchoring it. I want to make sure that anything we do, I keep my freedom. Um, cause sometimes like we get so far into what we're building that you forgot why you started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally get that. I, my, so our, our kids are two and six. So we're, we're behind you. They're still, we're still in the, the active war zone phase of, of, of parenting. <laughs> but I, I think about this too. Like my wife and I have these like daydreams of like, what's it going to be like when both kids are, even when, when both kids are in elementary school and my wife and I can have, you know, four hours a day of just like, peace and quiet in the house yeah and for what for every parent that i talk to says like oh you're 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 gonna miss this and you're gonna you're 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 gonna miss these times and your kids are this young and so i think there's there's a grass is always greener element of like dreaming ahead of what it's gonna be and then you get there you achieve it you achieve it beyond your wildest dreams and it's like it's not what you imagined that it would be it's fun it's great it's a joyful life but it's not what you imagined it would be and you know Back to like like freedom and whatnot. I think there's, you know, does does Elon Musk have freedom and control over his life? Like probably not. He's he's completely booked to the hilt, relying on other people 24-7. And so I think the the relationship between wealth and freedom is actually pretty low. It's actually just more of like how you situate the projects that you take on and who you associate with and what your family life is and what you say no to than it is what your net worth is. And that to me has been something that I've tried to figure out as well, you know, being fortunate with the book and everything, but still you can, you can make a lot of money and still have no control over your schedule whatsoever and be bogged down. I, I don't have an assistant. I don't, I'm a, I'm a one man show. So there's so much needless bullshit, just kind of managerial work that takes up my day. And I hate it. I hate every second of it. So that's what I think like the irony of like, I write a book about independence and I spend half my day doing like doing, doing admin work. So it's like, there's, it's, 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 it's always a tough thing to like, to find that balance. And the other thing that I, I read about, write about this in the book as well is like people change so much over time. So you can spend 10 years chasing a goal and be like, I want X, I want X. And then you get there and you, you realize you don't want it. And it's not because you were wrong. It's just because you're a completely different person. Like, obviously, what you wanted when you were 25 is different from 35, which would be different from 55. And that's sort of long-term planning. That's a hard thing. Like, all, like you, you always want your financial planning to be a long-term endeavor. I want to think long-term. But when you mix that with the idea that I'm obviously going to be a very different person in 10 years, that's a tough thing to do. Especially if you spend 10 years chasing a goal, you don't want that to be for nothing. You don't want to have that time wasted. So how do you balance like long-term financial planning with 
the realization and the observation that you're gonna, your goals are going to completely change. That's always a tough thing to do. To me, it's always been just avoiding the extremes. Whenever you have some extreme financial planning of like extreme spending, extreme saving, extreme work, extreme like it doing nothing, the more extreme it is, the higher the odds you're going to have a future regret 10 years from now. Mm. So that's where it just comes down to some level of balance of like, yes, I want to work. I want to work hard, but not too much. Yes, I want to I want to do some travel, but like not not too much. It's always just like some level of balance. And it's balanced with the idea that that's going to avoid the highest odds of future regret 10 years in the future. That's always how I've tried to frame living my life. Yeah, so good. Yeah, that was like that mixing of who you are with like your long-term wealth goals with knowing you're going to be changing. And yeah, that one was really good. I like that. There's a thing in psychology called the end of history illusion, which means that people are very keenly aware of how they changed in the past but they don't take the next step and associate that with how much they're going to change in the future. Like you can say, you know, at, at age 35, I'm you know, so different than I was at 25. So, so different. And the takeaway from that is that at age 45, I will be so much different than I am at age 35. Yeah. Like it's always, it's, it's always hard to imagine yeah. that you're going to change that much in the future. I, I see that with my parents who are 70 and they are so different at 70 than they were at 50. So they look different. They have different goals, different aspects. They're so completely different. And you, you would think at age 50, you would be set in who you are. And I've seen how much they've changed from 50 to 70, that it's like, we have no idea who we're going to be in 20 years. So, no idea whatsoever. Not just personalities, but what's the, what's the state of the world going to be in 20 years, economically, politically, climate? Like, who knows what the world's going to be in 20 years? Yeah. So how do, you, how do you plan around that? It's a, I don't know if I have any answers for that, but it makes me, when I think about long-term planning and be like, this is what I want to do for the next 20 years. It's like, well, <laughs> maybe. maybe. You've got to keep that open. you got to keep those options open. Yeah. I agree with that. And, you know, you're talking about personality and then world events, but also like the experiences we had between there and now, like what I was even saying, you know, the reason why we actually exited that business was, you know, her saying that I want to take a year off. Well, we actually don't want to take a year off. That's not what we may, maybe then because who we were then were, you know, we were working and we were living in this small town and she was, you know, our, <laughs> our kids were probably seven, nine and 10. And so what we thought then is we don't want to take a year off. I just, I just want to be able to go wherever I want when I when want. want. And so yes. I think just yes. designing that life around that. Right. Whereas like when you say, I'm going to take one year off, you're almost locking yourself. Like then you don't have independence. You're like, well, if you want to work, but you're forcing yourself into a year <laughs> off and all of a sudden you're not independent. So it's just like, yeah. to me, independence is just waking up every day and saying, I can do whatever I want today yeah. and yes. anything I want. And most days I'm going to wake up and say, I want to go to work. I want to go work really hard. That's what I want to do today. But tomorrow I might, I might not. And to me, like a lot of it is just schedule control. That if, if on a random Wednesday, I want to sit on the couch in my sweatpants all day, like 100% able, willing to do that without feeling bad about it. And there's only many times where on a Sunday, I want to work from dawn to dusk. And so to me, it's just like, do you have the ability to control your schedule? That really comes down to independence more than it is a long-term planning and thinking and making any decisions that are going to, that you're going to be forced to stick with for a period of time. It's just schedule control. Yeah. So interesting. Um, yeah. Have anything? No, this is so good. So one of the things that I wanted to, you know, I, I think one of the favorite things that we do is the couples mastermind and work with yeah. couples. Um, but I'm curious on, you, you know, your take, whether it's between you and and your wife or, 
or working with other couples, like it's, you, you see such a different, I mean, there's always probably two different mindsets in, in any two people, but do you do any work with couples or, or does it all apply the same? I think, do I work with other couples? No, I, I really haven't done much, much of that, but I'll tell you the experience from, from my couple, from the, you know, the, the money history of, of, of my wife and I, we didn't, we didn't get married at 19, but we've been dating since we were 19. So we, we've been together from a young age since we were kids effectively is what it feels like. I, I do think we're very lucky in the sense that in, when it comes to spending, there's never debates. There's never like, why, why are you spending money? You, you, you bought this? How much did that cost? There's never any of that. Because it's just uh, like we've just we're kind of on the same page with this is the lifestyle that we want to live. And I would also say that we're both on the same page in terms of wanting using money for independence. So the the book is is our is our equivalent of your plumbing business. This is like the thing like I didn't expect it was going to happen, but it's sold a million copies in a year. And that's that's been our windfall. And as it's happened in the last year. You know, I, I get a check for the book every six months and I tell my wife like, oh, we're going to get X dollars next week. And her her response is always, is this going to change how we live? And I say, no. And she's like, no, I don't really care about that. Like it's, <laughs> it's no, it's completely. And I actually love that. I actually love that it doesn't affect who we are or how we live or like what our identities are in the slightest. It's just a tool in our garage, so to speak, that we can use to live a better life. But it's not going to change who we are at all. Mm. Yeah, so I love that. Good. Yeah, so good. Um, I was just thinking, you know, even just doing the work with couples, cause we're, I, I think we're the same as, as you guys, although she's the CFO and yeah, uh, uh, I don't know if I'm a very good one, but <laughs> well, we've actually been talking about, it, it's an interesting conversation and this is probably really what I'm just, you know, thinking about obviously us, but then also helping, you know, couples in the mastermind. Cause I think when it comes to like, you know, individuals that I coach one-on-one or, you know, other programs that we have, like when you're dealing directly with an entrepreneur, um, you've got their psychology and that's it. But when we're dealing with couples, I think this is an area that's so impactful. And if we can kind of, you know, dissect just some tools that we could use there, it's important. But so again, we're, I think we're the same as you guys. There's, there's not a lot of disconnect there. Um, but the thing that I wrote down is like same page, different page. And um, it's kind of like a taboo conversation with a lot of couples, unless they're couples like you that it just is what it is. Um, it feels kind of taboo. So I'm I'm curious on when you see a disconnect, how, like, how, how do you, how, how would you bring couples together if they're not on the same page? I, I mean, I, I think, I think the honest, hard answer for a lot of this is I think it's equivalent to religion where it's like, if you're not on the same page, <laughs> this, wow. this, this might not work. Wow. Uh, that, that's the, that's, I don't think people want to hear that. People want to hear like, oh, they're, you know, here's how you fix it. And it's like, I don't, I don't, same with kids. Like, like, how do you have a couple if like, if, if the wife wants kids and, and the husband doesn't, mm. how do you rectify that? That's, that's kind of a, that's kind of a breaker right there. And that's why I think money, like financial education when you're young is so critical is because when you meet your future spouse, when you might be in your early mid twenties or your late teens like that, if you don't have a good financial education, you don't even know if you are financially compatible. You don't know if you're, if you're compatible with, with one another until you've kind of lived this as, as adults. My wife and I had, had lived together for seven years by the time we got married. Uh, so we, it was like, we, 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 we know how this works. We know, and we had even merged our finances two years before we got married. So it was, there was like nothing new when we actually got married financially. It was all it, like, it was, it was pretty seamless. But I think a lot of people, 
if they get married before they really have a lot of financial education or any significant income, then as a married couple, they realize like, oh, we see things very differently. I think religion has to be the closest analogy of what it is. And I think a lot of people's financial beliefs border on religious you know, it's just like they're so set and this is this is the way to do it. This is how you live a life. And a lot of a lot of religion is the study of like how, how to live a great life, how to live a purposeful life. And a lot of money beliefs are that as well. How do I live a, a good, happy, purposeful life financially? So I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of that in that. And again, that's why financial education when you're young is so important to learn about who you are financially before you start settling down and locking something in for life. So maybe that's maybe that's that's the hard, unfortunate answer. Uh, for a lot of couples is like, eh, you guys are really far apart. And I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know how you're going to rectify this. I have not seen that I can think of any couple that was like way far apart financially that took a course or whatever and, and brought it together. I've, yeah. I've never seen that happen. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I wasn't even really, I wasn't even really clear on why I was going to ask the question other than they were so passionate about working with couples and, and I have you on the call, but you actually just gave me like so much to think about on these like pillars, whether it's religion. I mean, you just said a lot, but religion, kids, money, uh, risk aversion, um, our overall life vision, what do we want life to look like location? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting because we always say like, it matters who you, your partner, like the person you pick, like can make you or break you. And you just saying this reiterifies that like so much of like, yes, it matters so much. You have to be on that like same page. And, yeah, and when I think about also, well, it, it also gives us another really solid, because we don't work with a lot of couples. We're very like, it's Tight. very small and intimate for a year, but it gives us another very solid filter on who we don't take, mm -hmm. um, yeah. which is super amazing. Yeah, I also think that how you spend money, spending philosophies come from your your early childhood background. And there's a lot of evidence that if you grew up in poverty, then that chip on your shoulder means like you want to show the world like you made it. You came from this and you made it. Here, here's, here's something that I did do recently. I did a talk in Colorado with a group of NBA players, current NBA players. And a lot of these people are literally 19 years old and make 10, $20 million a year. And the other thing about them is that they have a much higher chance of come, growing up in deep poverty, in inner city poverty. And one of the things that they told me that I was not oblivious to, but just some, not something I think about is they're like, you don't understand when you grow up in poverty like that, and then you get a $10 million check when you're 18, you have to go take care of the whole city. You have to buy your grandmother a house, your aunt a house, your sister a house. Everyone's got to be taken care of. You have to do it. And the other thing is when you grow up in that poverty, kind of like looking up to, you know, if you're living in, in poverty in New York and you're looking at the skyscrapers in Manhattan, you want to show people that, hey, you made it. Like you were down in these pits and now you made it. And that's where the Bentleys, the fan, the jewelry, like all that comes into play, which is, I think if for myself or you guys, like if we came into a huge pot of money tomorrow, it would not change how I want to show the world. It would not change the clothes that I wear, the cars that I drive. It would not change that in the slightest. But if you grew up in one kind of situation, it does. It completely changes how you want to show people. And that's where I think like these big differences in spending philosophies come from. It's just like, like who we grew up as as children have a huge impact on how we want to present ourselves to the world later in life. So I think that's a pretty good spot to end episode one. So hopefully you have enjoyed this. Make sure that you come back next week for episode two, well, where we will get into um, some more amazing information as Kara and I were 
you know, fortunate and blessed to be able to have a 90 minute call with uh, Morgan Housel. What a great opportunity. So i um, grateful that we could share that wisdom and insight with you guys and hope you have enjoyed it.